Good morning. Glad to have you here with us this morning. Whether you are a regular attender or this is your first time visiting, we're glad you're here with us. For that matter, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you're a committed follower of Christ or you're still trying to figure out where you are in your relationship with Christ, we're glad you're here. We're confident God has you here for a reason. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 11 this morning. This morning we'll be in Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Now, for those of you that are new with us, we are making our way through a series on the book of Acts, working our way verse by verse, doing the best we can to be faithful to what God's Word teaches. Tad in, let me pray, and then we'll get to it here. Uh, Father, we do pray that we would be faithful this morning. In particular, I pray that I would be faithful to teach your Word as it's laid out here. The goal always on Sunday mornings when we gather together is to make much of you, to exalt you to rightly preach your word. This is not about us and what we're going through. It's not about me and what I'm preaching. It's about your word and what it teaches. And ultimately, it's about Jesus because we know that all of the word points to him. And so we just pray that this morning we would indeed glorify Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be faithful this morning through your word to encourage us and to challenge us and convict us and help us to see more clearly who you are. So, Lord, we just ask for your help now. We know we need it. We know there are always distractions, not just in the short-term sense here on Sunday mornings, but there are distractions in our life, and we desperately need your help to be able to hear from you. So help us this morning, Lord, please. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, eight minutes and 42 seconds long, Don McLean's 1971 hit song, American Pie, is one of the longest songs ever recorded to hit the Billboard Hot 100. In fact, For over 50 years, the song held the record as the longest song ever to reach number one on the Billboard list. But in addition to its exceptional length, American Pie is also known to be one of the most debated songs of the 20th century. Many of McLean's lyrics were cryptic, and over the years, many tried to decode the meaning of those ambiguous lyrics to little or no avail. But despite the overall cryptic nature of the song, perhaps the most famous line is not ambiguous at all. Throughout the song, McLean refers to the day the music died. And there's no question about the meaning of that particular line, as revealed by both McLean and the context of the song itself. The day the music died is a reference to a plane crash in 1959 that killed rock and roll stars Buddy Holly, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Richie Valens. That plane crash occurred just outside of Clear Lake, Iowa in the early morning hours of February 3rd, 1959. It's probably one of the most famous plane crashes in rock and roll history. But it's the story behind the plane crash that I find to be particularly interesting. More specifically, the story of how those three men ended up on the plane together that night, I think is pretty fascinating. As the story goes, the three men were touring the Midwest together that winter as part of the Winter Dance Party Tour. The winter of 1959 was apparently unusually cold, with temperatures somewhat regularly reaching 30 degrees below Fahrenheit or colder. Not like this winter, that's for sure. And unfortunately for the men on the tour, the bus that they were touring on often broke down, leaving them stranded to endure these brutal temperatures alongside the Midwestern roads. So fed up with the bus travel, Buddy Holly booked a plane that was scheduled to travel from Clear Lake, Iowa to the next tour stop, which was near Fargo, North Dakota. There are only four seats on the plane, one for the pilot, three for the passengers. Originally, Holly was planning to travel with his fellow bandmates, Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsup. But as legend has it, when the big bopper, J.P. Richardson, came down with the flu, Waylon Jennings gave his seat to Richardson. And when Richie Valens voiced his desire to go on the plane as well, Valens and Tommy Alsop decided that they would flip a coin to determine who got the last seat. Valens, of course, you would know from history, won the coin toss, and as a result of that infamous coin toss, he lost his life. 
Now, to be sure, I don't tell that story to make light of the deaths of those three men, along with the pilot, too. Even though it may have happened 63 years ago, it's still tragic that those four men died when they did, leaving behind family members, wives, and in the case of the Big Bopper, two young children. So I'm not telling that story for entertainment's sake, but rather I tell that story because I find the decision-making process behind who ended up on the plane that night interesting and even relevant to our passage today. Richie Valens and Tommy Alsop in particular decided who got the last seat on the plane by flipping a coin. There are all kinds of ways they could have made that decision, but they decided to simply toss a small piece of metal in the air and see which side it landed on. Now, for the record, I don't think they're necessarily wrong to make their decision in that way. Obviously, in retrospect, that ended up being a pretty important, coin, pretty important coin flip. But given what was known at the time, flipping a coin to make a decision like that was probably not too crazy, at least in my opinion. I've actually made many a decision in my day by flipping a coin or by the even less scientific method of playing rock, paper, scissors. Sometimes when you have two decisions that seem equally valid, there's nothing wrong with flipping a coin or playing rock, paper, scissors. So again, I don't tell that story to make light of the crash or even to question the decision-making process. Had I been there, I might have done the same thing. Rather, the reason I bring up that story is simply for this reason. I think it's an avenue to begin asking a more important question that that story might lead us to ask. Namely, how do we decide to do what we decide to do? Granted, some decisions, like who gets the last seat on the plane, seem fairly insignificant, at least at the time, and making those types of decisions with a coin flip seems okay. But other decisions... Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should we move? Should I retire? What should I believe about this theological doctrine? What should be my conviction on this issue? Those questions are far more weighty, and in most cases, I would suggest those questions should not be decided with a coin flip or by playing rock, paper, scissors. And it's those types of decisions, and more specifically, how we make those decisions, that I want us to think about this morning. And the reason why I want us to do so is because I think our passage today lends us in that direction. In Acts 11, verses 1 to 18, Peter essentially recounts the events of chapter 10, which we looked at last week. In fact, in some cases, he's going to recount them almost verbatim. But the reason why he does so is to explain to a group of his critics why he did what he did. In other words, he explains and defends his decision-making process, process. And in doing so, I think Peter gives us a blueprint for sor- of sorts of how we should think about making decisions. To be clear then, my goal this morning is not that we'd be better equipped to decide who gets the last seat on the plane. But rather, in light of the passage this morning, my goal is that we would be better equipped to make the more important and weightier decisions of life. That we would take the time this morning, in light of what Peter teaches, or in light of what Peter says, to think about the why of why we do what we do. So that's it. Let's get to it. Acts 11, if you want to stand here, if you're able, physically, we would love for you to stand. It's out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Acts 1, or excuse me, Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Words are on the screen. You can listen as I read. If you have your Bible, you can read along. Acts 11, starting in verse 1, says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. 
And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just, on, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. Uh, he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then, th- then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So I think there are three sections in the passage today. The first is the criticism that's leveled at Peter in verses 1 to 3. The second, Peter's defense in verses 4 to 17. And finally, the resolution of the story in verse 18. And so what I want to do this morning is make our way through those three sections of the passage to make sure we understand what's happening here. And then by way of application, I want to circle back around and ask three questions related to why we do what we do and how we make decisions. So with that plan in mind, let's start by working through the text, starting with the first section, which is the criticism leveled at Peter. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now to understand this criticism that's being leveled at Peter in verses 1 to 3, we probably need to back up a little bit and rehash what we read last week in chapter 10. You may recall from last week in chapter 10, through a series of visions and even an appearance from an angel, the Gentile soldier Cornelius came to faith in Jesus Christ, received the Holy Spirit. As we said last week, this was a hugely significant moment in the history of the church because it was an indicator to Peter and ultimately in the end to the other apostles as well that the good news of Jesus Christ was not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles also. When we used the word Gentile last week, we said a Gentile is just one who's a non-ethnic Jew. In other words, you have two groups of people in the world, Jewish people and Gentiles. And Cornelius' salvation was a reminder that the gospel is not just for Jewish people. Now, to be sure, that Gentile barrier had already been crossed in some ways back in chapter 8 of Acts, when the Ethiopian eunuch heard about Christ and responded to the good news in saving faith. The significance of last week's chapter, chapter 10, is not only did Cornelius receive salvation in Christ, but also God made it clear to Peter that Gentiles like Cornelius, who are believers in Christ, were to be fully accepted members of the family of God. And that's what makes the barrier-breaking moment of chapter 10 even more significant than the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. In chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Christ, but there's no indication as to how he was received in the larger body of Christ. But in chapter 10, God doesn't just rescue Cornelius and his household. He makes it clear to Peter that God has now welcomed Gentile believers into the family of God on equal terms with Jewish believers in Christ. As we said last week, Gentile believers then are not second-class members of the family of God. Like Jewish believers in Christ, they too are sons of Abraham. And as such, Jewish believers in Christ should welcome Gentile believers wholeheartedly into the family of God and feel the freedom to associate with them in every way, including even eating a meal together. And it's that act of sharing a meal together with Gentiles that seems to have landed Peter in the crosshairs of at least some in the Jewish community. As verses 2 and 3 inform us, some in the circumcised party. This is likely a label that's given to a more conservative group of Jewish Christians. They criticized Peter because he went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
Now, in chapter 10, there is no explicit mention that Peter had shared a meal with Cornelius and other Gentile believers. But given that he stayed with Cornelius for several days, it's safe to assume that not only did he probably share one meal, he probably shared many. And at least for some Christians of a Jewish background, Luke labels them the circumcised party, this was a problem. And to be fair to these Christians of Jewish descent, you can kind of understand why they were concerned. After all, Peter's actions challenged their understanding of Scripture and challenged their understanding of what it means to be the people of God. As we mentioned last week, prior to the coming of Christ, there's a general understanding based on the Old Testament Scriptures that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. And thus, amongst those of the circumcised party, there is likely a belief that in order for a Gentile to be fully integrated in the family of God, they had to become Jewish in practice and thus accept all the elements of the Mosaic law, including circumcision. Apparently, they did not yet understand that the law had been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And thus, with the new covenant that was inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection, the distinguishing mark of holiness was no longer adherence to the Mosaic law. Things like circumcision. Instead, the distinguishing mark of new covenant believers was union with Christ and the sanctification that comes with it. Because of that new covenant reality, that now sanctification or now the holiness is set apart by being united to Christ, there's no distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers. What mattered now was not adherence to the Mosaic law, but rather union with Christ and the work of the Spirit. But the circumcised party did not understand that yet, and thus they criticized Peter for eating with Gentiles. In their mind, eating with Gentiles made Peter unclean. And again, although they were wrong, you can understand how they got there. Based on their understanding of the Old Testament, the idea that Jewish believers in Christ and uncircumcised Gentile believers in Christ are of equal standing would have been really hard for them to accept. And it would require a defense and an explanation. And that brings us to the second section of the passage, which is Peter's defense, found in verses 4 to 17. Now, with the exception of a few added details, verses 4 to 17 are essentially a condensed version of what we read last week in Acts 10. But this time we're getting the count from Peter's perspective, as opposed to last week we were getting Luke's narrative perspective. Now the fact that Luke repeats the story again through the words of Peter tells us something about the importance of the event. And in fact, the story is going to be repeated again in chapter 15. Similar to the conversion of Saul, which is repeated three times in the book of Acts, the fact that this story pops up three times tells us it's pretty important. But the fact that Luke gives us Peter's perspective also gives us insight into why Peter did what he did. And in summary, I think we can say this. The reason why Peter accepted Cornelius and his family, despite the fact they were Gentiles, and the reason why Peter would even share a meal with these Gentiles is because God made it plain to him that this is the direction he was supposed to go. And in fact, that's the main thrust of his whole defense of why he did what he did, that God was leading him. And in fact, in verses 4 to 17, we're going to see this again and again and again and again. I'm not going to read all of verses 4 to 17, but I'm going to read all of the sections in which Peter talks about God leading him. And what you're going to notice in the end is it's almost all of the verses. In fact, look with me starting in verses 4 and 5. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. So Peter starts his defense by noticing, or by noting he was praying, and then he's given a vision. Verses 7 to 9, we continue with the vision. I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, 
for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so in reciting his vision, now he points out that there's a voice from heaven giving him direction. Verses 11 and 12. This is after he's seen the vision three times. Verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So now as Peter continues the story, it's not just that he was given a vision, it's not just that he was praying, but now the Spirit is telling him what to do. Verses 13 and 14, he told us how he'd seen the angel stand in the house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So now Peter backtracks to Cornelius' vision. He points out that an angel was involved in this as well. And then in verses 15 to, 15 to 17, once again drives home the point, it's God leading. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was it I that I could stand in God's way? So Peter's defense is essentially this. God made it clear to me that this is the direction I was supposed to go, that I was supposed to accept Gentile believers into the community of faith. And God made it clear, Peter goes on to make clear, God made it clear through prayer and through a vision from heaven and through the leading of the Spirit, through an angelic visit, through the pouring out of the Spirit and through his word. And so Peter summarized it in verse 17 to say, who was I then to stand in God's way? If God declared the Gentiles to be clean, and in the events of Acts 10, it seems that he clearly did, then who was Peter to try to override God? So when asked to give a defense of his decision-making, Peter does not point to his own wisdom or his own authority or his own way of thinking. Instead, he points to the clear leading of God. And in that, I think there's a huge lesson for us. Our decisions should not be based on our instincts or our traditions or our own past experiences. Rather, like Peter, they should be based on prayer and the leading of the Spirit and the Word of God. Or to say it more simply, our decisions should be guided by God. For Peter to simply trumpet his own wisdom or his own intellect or his own authority likely would have been wholly unpersuasive to his critics, and for good reason. But when Peter lays out the evidences of God leading, it was hard to argue with his decision-making. And we actually see that in the final section of the passage, which is the resolution. Verse 18, the crowd finally responds after hearing Peter's defense. Verse 18, we read this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, to be sure, this is not the last that we're going to hear of the Gentile-Jewish debate in the book of Acts. In chapter 15, the issue is going to once again come into focus. But for the crowd assembled in Acts 11, when they hear the testimony of Peter, and when they consider the evidence that Peter presents, and specifically the evidence of God's leading and the Spirit's work, they fall silent, and they glorify God. It's a radical change from the beginning of the passage as one commentator put it, their criticism ceased and their worship began. Peter's defense and his explanation changed their mind. As they considered why Peter associated with the Gentiles and why Peter did what he did, they were convinced Peter was right. 
And in that, there's a really powerful picture at work here in Acts 11. The passage starts with complaining and criticizing, and it ends with God being glorified. And that radical change can be traced back to Peter simply explaining why he did what he did. Peter's decision was not based on a coin flip or a first century version of rock, paper, scissors. It was based on the clear leading of God. Through prayer and the leading of the Spirit and through the word of the Lord, Peter knew the direction he was supposed to go. And that's the direction he went, even though it wasn't a popular direction, and even though it probably wasn't a direction he was comfortable with himself. And in that, I think Peter's example gives us a blueprint, as I mentioned earlier, a blueprint for how we should think about why we do what we do. To that end, in the rest of our time together this morning, in light of this passage, I want us to think about the decisions we make and why we make them. More specifically, in response to this passage, I want to ask three application questions related to our decision-making and the why of why we do what we do. So the first question is simply this. How do you decide to do what you decide to do? How do you decide to do what you decide to do? Now, I understand not every decision in life needs to be overanalyzed and scrutinized to the point of exhaustion. If you're trying to decide between Arby's and Runza, I don't think you need to spend a lot of time praying or seeking wise counsel. Just go where you want to go. It's okay. So when I ask the question, how do you decide to do what you do, I'm not asking, how did you decide between Honey Nut Cheerios or Rice Krispies this morning? Or how did you decide what shoes to wear? Or how do you decide what lawnmower to buy last spring? Now to be sure, hear me, all of those areas fall under the umbrella of our relationship with Christ too. Given who Jesus is, how he died on the cross for our sins, how he rose from the dead, how he rescued us from death, everything we do should fall under the umbrella of our relationship with him. So those questions are not unimportant. But those are not the types of questions I have in mind this morning when I ask the question, how do you decide to do what you decide to do? Instead, the types of questions I have in mind are related to more big picture items. How do you decide which job to take? How do you decide who to date or who to marry? How do you decide what type of schooling you should do with your kids? How do you decide what friends you should have at school? How do you decide what to believe or not to believe? How do you decide what your spiritual convictions are? Those are really important questions. And I'm afraid that sometimes we don't always give as much thought to our decision-making process as we should. And that's where I think this passage becomes very helpful. In Acts 10 and 11, Peter is faced with a really difficult situation. He's not trying to decide, should I have the lamb kebab or lentil stew? No, he has a serious, serious question to consider. He's trying to discern a theological issue that not only has implications for him personally, it has implications for those he leads, and even the future direction of the church. That is weighty stuff. And the way in which Peter makes that decision and then explains it to his critics is extraordinarily helpful and instructive for us. Simply put, Peter does what he does because he's trying to follow the Lord's leading. And I would argue that we should do the same. Now, perhaps you'd say, well, of course, right? That sounds very obvious. Of course, we should try to do what the Lord wants. But to tell you the truth, I think we need to say it anyway. Because the reality is that oftentimes our decision making does not always filter through that grid. Sometimes we set aside our relationship with the Lord and make decisions in other ways. For example, many years ago now, I was in a discipleship group. And for the record, this is not in Nebraska unless you think I'm talking about your discipleship group. That was a long time ago. 
many years ago now, I was in a discipleship group with a bunch of guys when one of the guys in the group abruptly decided to take a job in another state and move away. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with taking a job in another state and moving away. None of us in the group had an issue with the decision itself. But the problem was the way in which the decision was made. As we talked with the guy, it's clear that his decision, at least from what he told us, was based solely on money and career aspirations. He didn't think about how it would affect his kids or how it would affect his marriage. He didn't think about how it would affect his connection to church. Most troublingly, though, he didn't seem to think how it would affect his relationship with Christ. At least from what he shared, at no point did he actually ask the question, is this what the Lord wants me to do? Now again, hear me, there's nothing wrong with taking a new job, and in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with a job in which you get paid more or you have career aspirations. But as followers of Christ, the most important, to question, the most important question to ask in decision making is always, what does the Lord want me to do here? I mean, think about it. If Jesus died on the cross for our sins... And if Jesus rose from the dead, and if one day he's going to come again and make things right, and if that's the end to where we're headed, and if we, rest, or if we realize that he rescued us and we owe all of our allegiance to him, and we know that following him brings the greatest joy, how could we not ask that question first and foremost? What does the Lord want me to do here? And to be clear, when I ask that question, I don't mean to ask it in an abstract way that makes no practical difference. Sometimes when we talk about knowing what the Lord wants, we talk about it in such an abstract way that we don't even know how, about, how to go about finding out what it is that he wants. But when I talk about following the Lord and trying to follow his direction, I think there's some very specific and practical things Peter does in this passage that models for us how we can discern how the Lord is leading ourselves. Namely, he prays, he follows the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he looks to the Word of God. Now notice first that Peter prays. Let's go back to verse 5 for just a second here. So this is how the passage starts. In verse 4, Peter begins to make his defense. And then in verse 5, we read this. I was in the city of Joppa praying. That's the first thing he mentions when he's giving a defense. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down on me. It's not a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence at all, in fact, that Peter is praying... And then God gives direction. We saw the same thing in chapter 10. Cornelius was praying, and then God tells him, go find Peter. And in fact, if you were to trace most of the truly momentous events in the book of Acts, you would notice almost all of them start with prayer. So if you're going to discern what would God have me do here, that's a pretty good place to start. Start by praying. Ask God, give me wisdom. Ask the Lord to open doors, close doors. Ask him to make the path clear. But then be open to the Spirit's leading. We see this in a couple of different ways here in chapter 11. Verse 12, we see this. And the Spirit told me to go with him, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Now, admittedly, the leading of the Spirit is a bit more mysterious, isn't it? And in churches like ours that value the Word of God and rightly see it as the Word of God, talk of being led by the Spirit sometimes makes us a little bit nervous. And listen, we're gonna, as we're going to see here in just a second, being led by the Spirit must always be informed by the Word of God. Those two things will never be at odds. If you're saying, oh, I think the Spirit's leading me to do this, and it clearly contradicts the Word of God, you're wrong. The Spirit and the Word are never at odds with one another. But that said, with those caveats aside, it's okay for us to talk about the importance of being led by the Spirit. 
In fact, the guidance of the Holy Spirit is critical to living out the Christian life because the truth is a lot of decisions that we make in life aren't always connected to a direct scripture. For example, over the course of the last two and a half years, we've had to make a lot of medical decisions for our son. And as you probably know, there are no Bible verses telling you what specific medications you should or shouldn't take. And so we have to pray. We have to ask the Spirit, Lord, please give us wisdom. Now, discerning the Spirit's leading can sometimes be difficult, but as you pray and as you spend time in the Word, the Spirit's leading becomes clearer. And that's the bookends here. The Spirit is leading throughout, through visions, through an angel, but at the start you have prayer, and at the end you have the Word of God. In fact, look at verse 16. So all this has happened with the Spirit, but how does Peter conclude this? Verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So as Peter is trying to discern the legitimacy of the Gentiles coming to faith, he recalls the word of the Lord, specifically a word about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's calling to mind here something John the Baptist first mentioned in Matthew 3, and then Jesus expanded on in Acts 1 verse 5. So the word of the Lord, hear me, is the compass that helped Peter to know if he was going in the right direction, right? He prayed. Clearly, God was leading in some pretty supernatural ways, but still, he runs that through the filter of what does the word of the Lord say? This was the North Star that helped him to know, okay, I'm going in the right direction. So Peter's path to discern, what does God want me to do, is he prayed, he followed the Spirit's leading, but then he looked to the Word to make sure he was on the right path. And I would argue that should be our pattern too. As we think about what job should we take, who should we date or marry, where should our kids go to school, what should we believe or not believe, what should be our conviction on this issue, those types of decisions should not be informed primarily by convenience or money or what others are doing, or what others are saying. Instead, our decisions should always be primarily based on one question. What does the Lord want in this situation? And to discern that, we need to be people who pray, we need to be people who are seeking the Spirit's leading, and we need to be people who are constantly looking to the Word of God for guidance. Now, having said that, we shouldn't expect that just because we're trying to follow the Lord, that everyone around us will embrace our decision. In fact, that leads us now to our second question by way of application. Are you willing to follow the Lord even if it means you face opposition and criticism? Are you willing to follow the Lord's leading even if it means you face opposition and criticism? Now, given his retelling of events in verses 4 to 17, and for that matter, given the content of the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, I think it's pretty obvious Peter was genuinely being led by the Lord. And yet note, the first reaction he receives to being led by the Lord is criticism. And think about that. In chapter 10, we have this tremendous moment of the Spirit being poured out on Gentiles. It's the Gentile version of Pentecost. It's awesome. But the very next thing that happens, Peter faces criticism. And that's instructive for us too, isn't it? I think some of us are under the impression that if we're being led by the Lord, everyone around us will always see it and agree with us. But I think what we need to understand is that following the Lord and doing what's right will not always be popular. And sometimes, even our fellow Christians will be the ones questioning our decisions. In fact, sometimes the questioning may be loudest from our Christian friends. That's the case here in Acts 11. In Acts 11 is those within the church who are questioning Peter. Not too long ago, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine that I respect I'm convinced he's truly trying to follow the Lord. He's actually been a pastor in several different areas of the country, including in one part of the country that's just pretty openly hostile to the gospel. 
But what he told me about being a pastor in that part of the country was really interesting. He told me that in general, he found non-believers in that location to be pretty warm and welcoming and even open to talking about spiritual things. It was the people of his church that were most opposed to his efforts to live on mission and make Christ known. Now that's sad, but it's not surprising. Just because you're following the Lord's leading doesn't mean everyone will always agree with you. And sometimes the opposition will come from those who know Christ, or at least those who claim to know Christ. But here's what you need to remember. As Christians, we are not politicians pandering to get others' votes. We're not trying to win the majority over or win a popularity contest. Instead, we are trying to be faithful to one voice. Now, hear me clearly, because I don't want to be misunderstood here. Obviously, there's wisdom in many counselors. Proverbs is clear about this. If your version of being led by the Lord means that you're always walking in opposition to every other person you know is a Christian, if you're the only one in your theological camp, there's a good chance you're just in the wrong camp. Right? Sometimes we end up on an island and we think, well, I'm just a great explorer who found a new island. No, most of the time you're just on the wrong island. Right? If you're by yourself, there's something to be concerned about. But having said that, we have to be willing to obey the Lord, even if it means not everyone agrees. We're not running to be homecoming king or queen. We are trying to please the God of the universe. Now, to be sure, there may be times where we blow it, right? And we go with the crowd. Even on this very issue of eating with Gentiles, Peter blows it in Galatians 2. The very thing that he argues for in Acts 11, he goes against in Galatians 2. He gives in to the crowd, and Paul has to rebuke him. But to Peter's credit, Peter repents. And listen, there will be times where we blow it too, and we go with the crowds. But like Peter, when that happens, I hope we repent also, because we have to remember who we are answering to. Our goal is to follow the Lord, not win a popularity contest. And in the days to come, as more and more people around us, including even some in the church, question the Word of God, and maybe they'll do so in an effort to appear more tolerant inclusive, open-minded. What we need to remind ourselves of is that what we need to remind ourselves of is this. We answer to only one voice. And if we face criticism because of that, that's okay. Our goal is to be obedient to him. So that's the second question. Are you willing to follow the Lord's lead even if it means you face opposition and criticism? But I think there's a the third question. And the third question by way of application is simply this. Are you teachable and open to biblical reason? Now, certainly, Peter's on center stage here in Acts 11. And without question, I think there's a lot we can learn from his example about how to make decisions and how to decide how we do what we do. But having said that, I think it's pretty instructive to note what happens with the crowd also. Again, remember how the passage starts. The crowd is criticizing Peter. But look at how the passage ends. Again, verse 18. When they heard these things, these things being Peter's defense, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's a pretty dramatic shift there, isn't there? From verses 1 to, 3 to, 1 to 3 to verse 18. And in that dramatic shift, I think we learn another important lesson about decision making. If someone can show us from Scripture, and if someone can make a defense with a biblical rationale, then we should be teachable and open to reason. Now here's one of the things I fear for myself and for the church at large. Oftentimes, we end up being more concerned with keeping things the way they are and doing things the way we've always done them rather than doing what the Word of God actually says. For example, at a church that I knew of in Texas, they clearly had a leadership structure in place that was not in line with Scripture. 
I won't go into all the details of their structure and how it was broken because that's not the point this morning. But the point is it wasn't biblical. But when confronted with what the scriptures actually teach, many key leaders in the church would keep pointing to tradition and the way things we've always done. They said, well, this is the way we've always done it. To be clear, that's not healthy. Just because you've always believed something to be true doesn't matter if it doesn't actually line up with what scripture teaches. Now, to the credit of the criticizing crowd in Acts 11, they were open to biblical reason and they were teachable. Peter's actions went against everything they'd likely been taught and went against everything they knew to be true. And yet, when he argues from Scripture, from the Word of the Lord, and when he argues based on what he'd experienced and how the Spirit was leading, they submitted and they were willing to change their minds. I think that's noteworthy. I think it's praiseworthy. And I hope that we have the same mentality. Like Apollos in Acts 18, I hope we're humble enough to be taught by others. And like the Jewish believers here in Acts 11, I hope we're open to biblical reasoning and teachable in heart. Now to be clear, I'm not talking about being open to reason that calls in question the authority of Scripture. That's not what happens here in Acts 11, and that should never happen in the church. What the Bible says is what it says. So I'm not talking about a, quote, more progressive or modern reading of Scripture. That's ridiculous. What I'm saying, though, is this, that our tradition... And our own way of thinking and the way we've done things in the past should never trump the word of the Lord. We should be teachable and open to someone explaining to us more clearly from the word. A fool will dig in their heels and say, well, this is what I've always done. And this is what we should keep doing. And you can't convince me otherwise. A wise person will say, show me the scriptures. Give me your biblical rationale and I will consider it. To make decisions, we must have conviction, but we must also have humility. We need to be teachable and open to reason. So listen, in conclusion, I would just say this. Some decisions can be made by flipping a coin or by playing paper, rock, scissors. But for the stuff that matters, I think it's worth considering this passage and learning from the example of Peter and the example of the crowd. We should decide to do what we do primarily because it's what the Lord wants. After all, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, of course we should live for him. And we should be willing to follow his leading, even if it means we face opposition and criticism. But at the same time, we should also be teachable and open to biblical reasoning. Because at the end of the day, our goal in making a decision is not just to make a decision, like who gets on the plane. No, rather, our goal is to bring glory to God and experience the joy of walking in obedience to him. And because of that, I think it's always worth asking the question, why do we do what we do? And I hope the answer is, we do what we do for the glory of God and for our own joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage in Acts 11. At first glance, it seems like it's just a retelling of Acts chapter 10. I think there's more than that going on here. I think Peter's explaining why he did what he did. And I hope in that we are challenged to think about why we do what we do. And really, more than anything, I pray that all of our decisions are framed by what Jesus did. That he died on the cross for sins. That he rose from the dead. That he conquered death. That he will come again. That he will make things right. I pray that what we do would be shaped by that reality. And so it's appropriate this morning that we would come to the Lord's table and we would be reminded of what Jesus did. Because it's what Jesus did that informs what we do. And so, Lord, help us now as we think about the Lord's Supper to be challenged by what we have seen you do and what we know you to have done, and that that would then shape how we live going forward. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.